Welcome back to Hit Factory. Just Aaron here on this side of the mic. And I brought along a wonderful guest with me today. He is a Vancouver-based director, cinematographer, colorist. He's an educator, as well as a fellow podcaster. Devin Scott is here today. Devin, welcome to Hit Factory. Thanks so much for having me. I feel very welcome. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show, Devin. Um, And listeners, you know, I'll start with this and say that sometimes we here at Hit Factory HQ get accused of not taking a side on a film, that we don't offer a sort of precise evaluation on the good-bad binary. And to those people, I will say feature, not bug, of our program. I think it's (laughs) always much more interesting and worthwhile to meet a movie on its own terms, to offer an analysis based on the merits uh, and its shortcomings. So you can imagine my delight when Devin asked to join me today to talk about a film that, in my opinion, transcends uh, any and all attempts to evaluate it in terms of a good uh, or bad movie. Uh, This one is something of a a tarnished gem, I guess I'll call it. Uh, A movie that I think is a total blast, even and especially as I'm embracing and engaging with all of its flaws. Today, we are going to be talking about the 1994 video game adaptation, Street Fighter, the movie. Jean-Claude Van Damme. When the stakes are high. If my $20 billion are not delivered... The hostages will die. He's the best there is. Now, who wants to go home? And who wants to go with me? Jean-Claude Van Damme. Raul Julia, Street Fighter. I'm the repo man. And you're out of business. Rated PG-13. Now playing at theaters everywhere. So, Devin, uh, you came to me with the suggestion to uh, talk about this one today. Uh, And I have now read a, a little bit of your your words on it in a direct message. I, I found a letterbox review uh, from you on this film as well. I think it's a five-star letterbox review, in fact. Yes, and uh, a heart, which is my highest rate. It's like five plus, you know? <laughs> yes, five five, and then a little asterisk and addendum next to it. That heart is, uh, is a crucial factor in those ratings. So I, I am curious... What is it about this movie that you find so appealing? Why was it the movie that you wanted to talk about today? Well, to give you an idea of the history I have with this movie with um, one of my best friends, Will, who is also the co-host of our older podcast that where we struggled to figure out how to fit this in, never did. Um, uh, we were once part of this online message board uh, that, you know, a sub thread of it called the film circle jerk. And uh, they, <laughs> they did a poll every year uh, for like, you know, best films in the nineties, eighties and all that. And independently, Will and I both put this film as our number one film in the nineties. And we were almost kicked off the list because they, it was claimed that we were colluding to troll. And I swear we did not tell each other. Um, and that's the <laughs> esteem with which we hold it. But no, it's, it's the film's a disaster. <laughs> um, and you know that theory of comedy that says that people often reveal more about themselves when they don't realize how honest they're being. Right. When they don't realize, you know, when they're saying something and um, it's in the gaps between what they don't say or it's in when that when they fumble something, when they fumble trying saying something sincere Um, people. And in this case, the people behind this movie, and I would also say the Hollywood system and America in general, this film reveals so much about all of that accidentally 
the film is the greatest accidental fascist versus fascist comedy I've ever seen. It is, um, it, it's a film that lays bare the mechanics of American imperialism uh, better than just about any film I can see I've ever seen not directed by Paul Verhoeven called Starship Troopers. Hmm. And so the film hits on that end, but it's also just, I mean, I, 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 I could probably ramble for about eight, you know, two hours about this, but the film also is also just one of the most watchable examples of what uh, a, a term I coined and then actually will, the aforementioned will turned into an actual kind of ideology uh, called the enter the anti masterpiece, hmm. um, a film that through no fault of its author becomes an astonishing work uh maybe in spite or because of a distinct lack of conventional competence right um it's a film that's a deep rich text and it's richer for having its richness be unintentional Mm. right um the fact if this film had been a comedy a conscious comedy about uh american imperialism and adventurism you know, starring a Belgian. Um, if it had been intentional, it would be less of a rich text than what we got. The film is more valuable for being a pile of shit. Sorry, I don't know if this is a podcast where you can say that, but please it, do. It's all the more valuable for being for for being a complete explode on the launchpad calamity. So that's why I love it. It's it's inexhaustible. I've probably watched it a dozen times, and every time I watch it, I, I find something new because it's so dense. I love all of that, um, and I, I think that as you lay that out, I, I, I hear it, and and you know my everything about, I just start levitating. Frankly, I get very excited to hear that take and this read on Street Fighter the movie, um, because I have seen the movie now a couple of times, and I should start maybe by publicly uh, saying that once upon a time, for anyone who is steeped in the Hit Factory lore, I, I said on our our uh, fellow. Uh, podcasters show Podside Picnic with our our friend Carlo that their episode on this featuring myself and Carly uh, would be the definitive uh, word from Hit Factory Pod about Street Fighter. I had to break that promise when Devin came to me because there is, I think, more to mine here. I think there is more to talk about. And it was also my first time seeing this film prior. Uh, And now having watched it again, I see so much more of that richness that you're talking about, that kind of unintentional uh, sort of brilliance behind it. And and not to say that it's not a fun movie, like at face value. I think that there are plenty of things that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Stephen E. D'Souza et al. Are, are doing in this movie and that are very deliberate and, you know, kind of cheekily parodying this, very cartoonish video game world, you know, doing the best they can to to not be too self-serious with uh, something that is a very colorful, cartoonish, you know, side-scrolling, button-mashing video game. Uh, but even removed from that, I, I think that some of D'Souza's bona fides and, and some of the, the kind of experience that he's had is uh, sort of enmeshed into this work in a way that like you said uh gets in there without him totally meaning to this is after all this is a screenwriter's uh directorial debut is it his Mm -hmm. debut i know he's made maybe a short film prior to this it was his first Um, feature yeah yeah um which which i think is maybe part of the problem here you know we uh 
and again, I say problem lovingly. There's no problems with this movie. It's a, it's a it's one where we're gonna have to keep qualifying every time we call it a piece of shit or or you know call it bad, anything like that. But uh, yeah, this is where I should probably mention in my in my like twisted world, calling something a piece of shit is not a value judgment. <laughs> <laughs> It is a it is an artistic choice to uh, to make this a piece of shit and to call it thusly, uh, but so Stephen E. D'Souza, uh, well established screenwriter in Hollywood at the point that this movie comes out, uh, responsible for the Walter Hill film Forty Eight Hours as one of the the screenwriters. He also uh, wrote Commando, co writing credits on Die Hard one and two, Judge Dredd. Uh, after this work uh, and one of my favorites uh, of, of his uh, screenwriting credit on the Denzel Washington film Ricochet which is mm. nice and nutty if you have not seen it total blast great John Lithgow villain performance um, we will cover it on the show at some point I guarantee you that much but this one I, I mean if we if we are to believe D'Souza's claims he wrote this script overnight in order to pitch it to the executives at Capcom uh, because he learned that they were going to be in Los Angeles and wanted the gig of directing this film. Um, And so much of this feels very kind of slapdash. It is silly. It is, you know, tongue in cheek in parts, uh, but there are things about it that I think read and register very much as a guy who has made sort of like eighties, muscle-bound action movies doing something uh, within a video game context. Yeah, I think it is very telling that um, one of the first things that uh, um, I keep wanting to call him, I think, I, I always forget, do, do we call him D'Souza or Souza? Is it... Um, Great question. I, I'm going to call him D'Souza, I think. Yeah, because well, t- to me, the, the D'Souza I think of first is uh, Denise, who uh, directed the worst films I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> yes, um, and I've seen all. Of, I'm a I'm a I'm a D'Souza completionist for both D'Souzas because I've seen I think <laughs> um, somehow, despite being a leftist Canadian, but um, the. Um, uh, yes, uh, I think it's very telling that D'Souza and the studio, the first thing they seem to have agreed on is let's totally throw away the premise of the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's not make it about a street fighting tournament, the thing that's in the title. Let's make it about a, uh, a kind of Vietnam War style assault on a petty warlord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I, I, I mean... This is, uh, mind you, too, kind of in the era of big video game adaptations, kind of for the first time, you know, Mm -hmm. that there is a sort of cultural purchase with these video games and with gamer culture that studios are taking gambles on these kinds of films. This one is preceded by, I think, just a year, uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo in the, the title roles. Uh, and also, I think, just beats Mortal Kombat to the screen uh, in that mm-hmm. adaptation. And I think this one finds a way to kind of toe the line between those two tones. I think Mortal Kombat may be taking its premise a little bit more seriously. And, and that one does offer the goods in terms of a fighting tournament. Whereas the Super Mario Brothers movie seems to be made by... Uh, tons of people who are just totally embarrassed that they are doing a video game adaptation. Uh, this one seems to know, I think, what they're working with uh, and mm-hmm. is attempting to to have as much fun as they can. Uh, and 
you know, D'Souza is someone who has written these kind of movies before about, you know, petty warlords or, uh, I don't know, German terrorists taking over buildings in the middle of Los Angeles. You know, this is kind of his bread and butter. So he's imbuing this with a lot of this kind of action movie context. And as you watch it, I, I mean, there are moments in this film that kind of astound for something that is clearly marketed towards, you know, children or, or you know, like teenage gamers, uh, just in terms of how it is sort of playing with the notions of U.S. imperialism, about our history of warfare in Southeast Asia. There's a great, just like very quippy moment at like an open air weapons market where someone is selling off a helicopter and says that it was only used once. It was uh, just to evacuate the U.S. embassy in Saigon. And then after that, it's it's basically like new. Um, mm-hmm. and, and all of this stuff just like kind of subtly registers. It's it's there for a moment and you might miss it. But uh, yeah, I just, I this time around, I found it so kind of bizarre and shocking that I was seeing a movie about, you know, these, these muscly cartoon characters throwing punches and kicks uh, amidst all of this kind of global context. It is really interesting that, I mean, I've tried to look into this uh, in preparation for this because I, I'm I'm always trying to fight against that urge to take, especially old films, and I think we can call this an old film now. You know, even, as much as that pains my heart, um, <laughs> to, you know, we can call this an old film. You know, taking films from eras that are not of our own at face value, right? It's like the thing where people watch old John Ford movies and go, oh, look at that old coot and don't realize that they're actually, you know, oftentimes extremely subversive. Not all of them, mm-hmm. but quite a few of them. Um and I wanted to fight against that. And frankly, everything I turned up uh, seems to indicate I listened to uh, D'Souza's entire commentary. <laughs> um, oh, wow. seems to, yeah, seems it's it's a it's a very laser disc commentary. <laughs> um, but um, he talks about the he talks about how oh, he, he says, well, you thought it was ridiculous. We're making this film. Well, Tim Burton just found some Mars attacks trading cards. and He's going to turn it into a movie, you know, that era. But um, uh, it seems that D'Souza his reading of this film is completely face value. Um, in fact, he was shocked that the UN didn't want to be involved because he says, I made them look great. Um, you know, they're, they're fighting, you know, warlords and he's, and throughout the commentary, it's quite clear that he sees Jean-Claude Van Damme and the AN, which is a very thinly veiled UN, uh, as the good guys and Bison is the bad guy. And Bison is a, there's no reading in the film where he's not bad, but there's the film. There's the thing the film kind of thinks it is. And the thing it is, where it stumbles into by dint of uh, Colonel Guile, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme, the most Belgian man in history. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, no amount of arm tattoos can save him. Um, the um, There's the fact that he and every single thing he does in the film is a perfectly tuned parody of that kind of American machismo, right? Like the fact mm-hmm. that he's the person who gets Charlie <laughs> turned into a monster by outing him. Uh, he pumps himself up for fighting by like playing nostalgic music and his two like, you know, his two lackeys are just awkwardly looking into the distance at how crazy yes. their boss is. <laughs> um, he, he, he essentially pulls in George W. Bush in the Iraq war uh, with the with the AN by just going, hurrah, we're going on our own. We don't need yes. 
permission. Um, weirdly enough, the film is a better satire about the Iraq war than I think any other war. Um, and, um, and yet I think part of what makes it beautiful is that, uh, it's, uh, it's the call is coming in, in from inside the imperialistic house. Right. And what's even better is they don't realize no one involved seems to realize that they're doing it. Least of all the guy playing guile, uh, who's mm-hmm. too cooked out of his mind to understand and the uh, director writer. So I, you know, I find that just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it really is a thing of beauty seeing that there's, you know, uh, this huge ensemble cast of, of characters and so many of them seem both at odds with the script and in any given scene at odds with one another about like what kind of movie they're yes. in the middle of. Um, we've mentioned Jean-Claude Van Damme, the most Belgian actor on the planet. Um, turning in what is maybe one of the worst performances I've seen from him in a, in a long history of, you know, not great performances. I, I think he has a few that are, you know, a lot of fun and, and pretty damn good hard target. I think of uh, more recently uh, the universal soldier movies, but in this, yes, he's coked out of his mind. He's almost <laughs> unintelligible in many moments. He, he kind of kicks off the movie, you know, it's, it's him, uh, and Ming-Na Wen as Chun-Li, who's at the time, you know, kind of incognito as a, as a field reporter, you know, reporting on this, this uh, AN military operation in the fake Southeast Asian country of Shadaloo. I actually looked to, I, I like, I, I kind of cross-referenced the maps they show, which are slightly inaccurate maps of the area. And it seems to be on the border of Myanmar and Thailand. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Based on what, but the evidence in the film, by the way. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that makes sense. I think that uh, many of the exteriors that they used for kind of like Bison's hideout and some of the stuff that looks a little bit more like Southeast Asia was in uh, Bangkok, where they shot mm-hmm. a little bit of like early photography. Um, I read a, a just a very small little anecdote that uh, uh, initially they had plans for a, a big assault on Bison's fortress that involved helicopters and planes and boats and all of this different stuff uh but couldn't do it because of ongoing conflicts with Myanmar uh neighboring them <laughs> next door uh so they put something in the script i think Guile at one point says unfortunately we can't use uh any any aircraft for this so we have to use yes. one special stealth boat along the river um but uh, yeah van damme is just i mean he's such like a a curiosity in this movie it is uh a choice that I understand came directly from Capcom that ate up like something like a, a a fifth of the total budget of the movie, just getting him hired and getting him in the lead role. Uh, and the results are mixed at best. I think and, and them being mixed is so, you know, it's to the movie's benefit at every given point. I mean, part of what makes this movie thrilling is that line by line, you're never sure if you're going to get a genuinely funny joke um, like there's stuff in this film that works. I mean, I think almost all of West Studi's, two thirds of West Studi's lines work. Um, yeah. Almost all of Raul Julia's <laughs> dialogue works as it should, as intended. Like, um, f- I mean, I know for me it was Tuesday is now a meme, but it's a genuinely brilliant line delivered well and staged pretty well. Yes. Um, but with Jean-Claude Van Damme, it's like maybe a quarter of his stuff works. and But the three quarters <laughs> that doesn't work is... Some of my it's my favorite performance in the film because uh, whenever it doesn't work, it, it again it 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 adds to this 
sense that his character is this completely unself-aware wannabe fascist who desperately wants to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe there's yeah. some meta text there with Jean-Claude, um, but really can't. Um, and again, I was about to say, you've seen Total Recall, but of course you have. Um, yes. but, um, uh, but Total Recall, I think part my favorite part of that film is how hard Paul Verhoeven works to undercut Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like all of his best lines in that film are delivered in like wide shot that make him seem small. Um, yes. <laughs> this is, this is basically the same mechanics except it's entirely because they were rushing couldn't get the right camera position and their lead actor was uh coked out and very distracted by an ongoing affair with kylie minogue which uh yeah which they don't they don't uh play too much they don't play up too much in the film itself they uh certainly kind of have him favoring chun li in a lot of the scenes um in fact, they they almost do work to make Kylie Minogue not terribly sexy for like a mm-hmm. l- large portion of the movie. Um, but, you know, props to both of them. I hope they had a good time, I suppose. Uh, you know, similar to how we, you know, we mentioned Verhoeven already, but similar to the way that he employs, you know, these uh, young, cragless, like beautiful actors who are just like pristine, almost sort of like totemic icons of you know, a, a fascist regime in Starship Troopers, you know, like your Casper Van Dien and mm-hmm. your Denise Richards and stuff like that. Uh, Van Damme is kind of that in this movie. And his failure to regard it and to understand it does make it absurdist and, and hilarious in equal measure. And it starts right away. You know, he's he's goading uh, Raul Julia's General Bison over... Uh, like a, a satellite intercom and exchange and all he can think of as like a retort to you know these very grand almost like Shakespearean villainous kind of retorts is to like give him like a an arm flex and a you know kind of stuff it sort of gesture <laughs> um, he just he, he doesn't have anything he's got nothing but his own just sort of like empty uh, machismo as you said to just like you know, just puff his chest up and and get a little manly with it. You know, it's really tempting to just turn this into a litany of like his best lines. Like, I mean, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really partial to what uh, is probably hiding. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> his inability to just get through basic the basics. Um, again, I, I probably it for me to make fun of that man's accent. You know, he came by as superstardom, honestly, but like. I think the the gap between to me the funny part is really the gap between the character as written and the character as played right where the character as written is from the word go all American um, guy who's just like the most you know he's a grizzled general and out comes the voice of this very goofy clearly European man Um, it's 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 that (laughs) the way the film tries to do both is pretty is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've you've mentioned already and alluded to it, but just at the very end, you know, when he finally pulls off his uh, AN, you know, camouflage <laughs> combat jacket and reveals his rippling arm with his uh, very silly American flag shoulder tattoo, like that is the most American thing he's able to conjure up in this film is just what what very much looks like a you know, like a, a tempo tattoo that he put on with a little <laughs> bit of spit before he got in the, in the boat. Um, yeah, it's, it, he is not at all what that character I think is on the page. And 
that Capcom was, you know, so insistent on him getting there and being that character, I think is very funny. You know, obviously he's got star appeal. He's got a certain level of marketability. Like there are, are business reasons for why he is in the movie. Um, but the incidental nature of it working in favor of, you know, this sort of adopted veneer of Americanness uh, is really rewarding as well. You know, what's more American than uh, than the American dream of the uh, of the Belgian immigrant? <laughs> so, um, says the Canadian. Um, but, <laughs> but I mean, and speaking of kind of, you know, things that the studio imposed in the film that were maybe questionable, um, the fact that this is an ensemble piece is incredible to me. Yeah, it's really compelling stuff because uh, we do get, you know, after Van Damme, who, uh, as we mentioned, eats up a significant amount of the budget. Uh, Raul Julia, who for everyone in this film does seem to have some sort of read on the kind of movie they're making. Mm-hmm. Um, he understands is, the is assignment. Just, he understands the assignment. He took the assignment on uh, sort of as kind of a a loving gesture to his child or children um, who I know were, were fans of the game. And at the time he was diagnosed with cancer, he was in uh, failing health and it, it does, I think end up uh, turning into his, his final screen performance. He, he passed away not long after the filming was finished. Um, and before the film was released, this movie is, is dedicated to him. In fact, uh, but we get a, a, whole murderer's row of kind of unknown actors, you know, faces that you'll recognize as sort of, you know, background pieces or character actors throughout the nineties and aughts, but uh, people who are granted a significant amount of screen time and import in the movie um, in very kind of bizarre ways. You've got uh, Damien Chapa and Byron Mann as our Ken Masters and Ryu Hoshi characters We've already mentioned Ming-Na Wen as Chun-Li and her gang with uh, Honda and uh, Balrog as well, played by, and I know I'm going to mess up his name here, I think it's Peter Twasasopo is Honda, Um, and then Balrog is Grandel Bush, and all of these characters, and then some. We get get Wes Studian here as sort of like a side character and like secondary villain, Uh, but the ensemble component of it is, I mean, to me, it almost feels like a decision imposed to not require any one person to be forced to carry the movie, um, despite the fact that, you know, Van Damme is clearly meant to be the star, is marketed as the star. Um, how, how do you feel about it? Do you think that everyone manages to hold up their end of the bargain here? Do you think that they all like carry their weight in the film? It's easier to name the people who do work. Um, I think West Judy pretty much understands the assignment, even though he's saddled with some of the, like, uh, uh, I, there's so, certain things that come out of his mouth in this film that I'm like, that I uh, transcend logic. Um, but um, <laughs> like, I think Andrew Binyarski is pretty good as Zangief. Uh, yes. He manages to land the change the channel line, which is one of the fun, hardest I've ever laughed at the movie. Um, but I think <laughs> by and large, it's a disaster. It's, it's entirely accounting related, right? It's, they wanted to have as many characters in the film as they could from the game so they could sell the toys. Right. And right. it, but I think what results is, is, you know, in the aggregate to the betterment of the film. And again, I mean, betterment of the film as an object, not as a workable piece of art where, <laughs> um, where the film 
because it has to stuff in so many beats, not only do you get that classic, like, I think the best example ever is Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, where he wanted to put in every line of dialogue and the film ends up being the choppiest thing ever. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it feels like within the scenes, you have the performative editing that is just cut to the bone. It's not just the censorship and the action scenes. It's line, 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 line at all times. Um, action, it's like characters are teleporting around. Um, but then you have the overall momentum of the film where the film cannot concentrate in a single plot thread. Um, it's, 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 it's the fighting tournament. It's uh, like, remember, uh, remember Victor Saget's, uh whole plot about his criminal enterprise remember when that was a thing um you know i mean then you have like dr dalism and charlie uh you know you have uh, you know even um uh strangely enough like chun li is a great example of a character who has her own goals separate from the the protagonists right so weirdly the film stumbles into good representation there but um it's a complete messed up melange of a disaster and uh, and so I have to answer that yes, it's a disaster, and most of the performances are terrible, like um, <laughs> just truly risible. And yet, I think this is key to what makes the film what it is. Yeah, this time around, especially, I felt uh, you know that for a movie that often feels like it is uh, about to go off the rails. The wheels are coming off of it the entire time. It always somehow manages to sustain its momentum purely through the grace of not being able to like focus in on one single plot thread for too long. Mm-hmm. And it can feel confusing. I, I certainly was confused, I think, by the range of everything, what everyone's motivations were. I think many of the actors are still confused by what their motivations were in the film, to be clear. But as I was watching this for a second time, for a third time, I realized, oh, you know, now that I know where this is kind of going, who these characters are, you know, what who, who they are within the, the context of the game. I was not uh, a Street Fighter player by any uh, means at all. I was more of a Mortal Kombat guy. It, I, I think it finds its way. I think it manages to be entertaining. It it feels like kind of a sugar rush of <laughs> just beats and little character moments because it can't quite latch on to what the interesting thread or what the most uh, meaningful thread is intended to be through all of this. By the time you get to the point when, uh, you know, you have the big, you have this long scene, really long scene where Kanye and Ryu are trying to, you know, are are about to be forced into a cage match. Yes. And then (laughs) Jean-Claude Van Damme busts into the whole place with uh, a giant armored car that appears to be armed with thermonuclear warheads or something. Yes. Um, (laughs) You know, at that point, I mean, the the plot threads just crash into each other in the strangest ways. It feels like, again, the whole film feels like spit and duct tape in that way. Yeah. That part to me is the one where I, you know, almost kind of had to hand it to the the script and and to what was happening here because it it teases the fundamental appeal of street fighter as a property which is you know one-on-one fighting tournaments cage matches and then it doesn't deliver the goods it promises to put characters we actually kind of care about at this point that we've been introduced to in the ring uh it has the the character vega played by jay tavare who has like a really cool kind of like ponytail and a metal mask and a, a long kind of steel set of wolverine claws on one hand um the, well, i love his 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 prison version of that which is you know the the, the, the diy <laughs> shiv version i just love 
it's that part had me cracking up when West Studi hands him like the bamboo wrapped around with like some rope and like the little like yeah. knife ends on it. Just, you know, here's here's your makeshift shift version. Uh, but every step of the way in this moment, it feels like it is almost deliberately kind of spitting in your face if you kind of came for for the fighting and, and to see mm-hmm. the characters in any sort of condition that you recognize from the games like Vega and his character design are pretty cool. Like they're aesthetically, you know, kind of interesting. He's got the claw, he's got the mask. And in the scene where, you know, they're teasing that there's going to be this fight, he takes them both off (laughs) and they're like, Oh, no weapons in this scene. It's just going to be, you know, a handsome muscly guy with a ponytail, uh, fighting. Uh, and then right at the moment that we're about to get the goods in comes the, you know, AN vehicle with the warheads on it just to crash in and say, no, 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 this isn't what we're doing. It's one of those things where, I mean, I, I fully believe that one should not feel any fealty to source material, right? To me, the best version, <laughs> the best adaptation of anything is whatever the best version of the movie is in this case, right? And with that said, I mean, just looking at this in terms of the, you know, the long arc of history since then, one really gets the sense of why, you know, f- finally getting films like X-Men or whatever, you know, seemed like a breath of fresh air, right? You know, filmmakers mm-hmm. who truly respected huge air quotes, respected the source material, um, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of how we got Marvel, right? I mean, you know, this idea that, oh, hey, let's actually take our cues. You know, the movie wraps itself around the comics instead of, in this case, uh, the whole concept that they're borrowing from wrapping itself around whatever the hell this is and, and you know, the, the studio wanted to do. Right. So um, I both, this movie now seems like, yeah, a quaint relic, right. Because of the fact that it's, it's from that era when the studios felt no need to pay fealty to its source. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fandom wasn't, you know, so vocal and so outsized. And I guess, you know, like the, the reputation of these kind of properties couldn't be so just like, you know, buried in the dirt by social media presences and, and this weird kind of fan culture yet. Um, and, and they were able to have, I think a little bit more leeway, have a little bit more fun with exactly what they're going to do within, within the plot structures of the film. And, and I admire it kind of, frankly, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to think of how do you make a compelling 90 or a hundred minutes out of, uh, a game that is, you know, you you put a quarter in and you scroll left and right and you hit a couple of, of buttons and, you know, slam a joystick. Like, how, what, how do you turn that into something that has narrative cohesion, has stakes that gets you kind of excited over the course of an entire feature length? Um, so, you know, the, the people involved in this certainly kind of had their work cut out for them, putting together something that was a narrative. Uh, and I'm, it, it's so funny just what comes out of that. It's, it's so, yeah. uh, I, I am kind of in awe of how much is here and how much you can mine from it. Ah, the road not taken, but why, why do they still call me a warlord and mad? All I want to do is to create the perfect genetic soldier. Not for power, not for evil, but for good. Carlos Blanca will be the first of many. They shall march out of my laboratory and sweep away every adversary.
adversary, every creed, every nation, until the very planet is in the loving grip of the Pax Bisonica. And then peace will reign in the world, and all humanity shall bow to me in humble gratitude. That was beautiful. There is considerable effort uh, on the screen. There mm-hmm. are some very interesting, very fun kind of like sound stages and set pieces that are being designed here. All the costuming is rewarding and fun. And there's just little details peppered throughout that I find uh, so incredible as well. All of the propaganda posters around... Yeah bison's uh hideout are hilarious and really funny and and you know engender a lot of thoughts of the uh, different bison kind dollars of, the bison oh my god uh for our, our listeners devin is flashing me a genuine hundred spot uh, of bison bucks right now uh from his wallet um also in the you know it was tuesday scene there are little bison drink skewers like they're black oh, yeah. plastic and with all like the, the art <laughs> like like the the, the um the, the you know the, 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 the kind of painting where they plastered him over napoleon uh riding his horse yes um, the, I, I i used to know the name of the artist they're parodying with the modern art pieces but it's they didn't to, to use the parlance of our, of our times they didn't have to go that hard they didn't they did not have to go that hard and i know you know Devin, you're somebody i think on the internet who uh, is is maybe the least alarmist when it comes to like trends in modern cinema of anybody that I follow and and tend to to talk to or engage with. I'm alarmist uh, in my private life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but there is something here, you know, that feels like it's gone away a little bit, you know, and, and maybe it's just you know that they're in totally real environs and you know you have this production design team or or you know this lead who's putting together all these little details you have someone who has these kind of ideas in mind of throwing in these quippy little little bits of of you know fun reference points and things from our world that would be in this space uh but it just you know for as as bizarre and strange as it is it does have those little kind of flourishes and brush strokes that make it feel more lived in than it really needs to for this kind of fantasy world. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of um, modern comparisons, and I just watched uh, The Flash, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, it's I, I find that you know modern disasters are does that. I mean, I feel like you know we're always kind of pining for the crap of our youth, I guess, because um, although this is a film I discovered when I was like 20, I guess, you know, way after the fact, but um, I wonder if in like 20 years, someone will be on whatever the VR version of a podcast will be the AI generated talking heads um, and be saying the same things about stuff like the flash, you know, where it's like, because that film shotgun blasts itself in the foot due to corporate overmanagement in a lot of Mm -hmm. the same ways that street fighter does. But 
Street Fighter, again, is still bound by the laws of physics circa 1994, which is that they had to deal with real sets. And those real sets often broke. I mean, part of the joy of this film is like seeing Raul Julia crash through the, the that glass panel and you suddenly see the flats and the, <laughs> you see yes. the, the backside of the set behind him. <laughs> and, and there's a whole bunch of points in this movie when the seams are plainly visible and those would all have been buffed out now, right? So I, right. I do think that there is a kind of there's a kind of ropiness to the studio filmmaking that you don't see in the same way, but I'm guessing that like people are going to look at that, that disastrous Nicholas cage cameo in the flash and how, and how uncanny he looks and maybe laugh at that the same way, maybe. Um, so I, I have a hard time saying, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe we should, we should check in in 20 years. I'll, I'll send you a calendar invite. You know, we'll put in a time capsule right now and we'll, we'll meet again here uh, 20 years from the date and talk about the flash and see if we can find any sort of, very subtle but you know latent anti-fascist politics within it that are interesting to talk about or any sort of like self-parody that we can grant you know a certain level of uh intentionality to anything like that you know at least in 20 years we can joke about all the all the all the kidnapping (laughs) (laughs) oh boy maybe maybe by then we'll see yeah maybe Uh, (laughs) i do think that there's a certain yeah there's a certain chaos to this film that uh, i mean you can still find occasionally, obviously, and now it's just, again, I, I I have a hard time enjoying, I think the only modern film I've enjoyed in the same way is actually Star Wars 9, um, oh boy. which <laughs> is a film I deeply love, even though it's, again, it's, but I deeply love it because I love seeing corporations light their own cash on fire, right? It's, <laughs> I love that as an spectacle and to me there's no better spectacle than watching money burn on screen right yeah. <laughs> um and so that film is, that film is the closest anyone's ever gotten to that purest version of that and so i mean i i guess i guess yeah the the um the dimensions of what i can get out of studio garbage just change if that makes sense yeah of course yeah that see that's a, a very fair uh read of that film one that i found uh baffling and joyless and to date one of the few things that i have walked out on in a theater before but you know maybe now that it's available for home viewing i will i will be able to reevaluate it on on something other than just my sheer distaste in the moment for it my hope for you is you find it one day baffling and joyful (laughs) Um, on the subject of street fighter though there are some fun (laughs) things in here going on that do kind of poke and prod at the textures of like 90s sort of neoliberal capitalism, I guess Mm -hmm. I'll I'll say. Um, A lot of them are expressed through Bison and through Raul Julia, who, as we've already mentioned a couple of times, understands the assignment, is the best performance by far, carries a significant amount of this movie on his, uh, you know, shoulders, even as he is in declining health. And he has so many lines that I think, as you mentioned, are intentionally funny and work because he knows that they are funny. You know, they they start early on. There's a, a really fun one where they're trying to warp Blanca's mind with all of these visions of <laughs> chaos and violence and, uh, you know, just like d- despotic, uh, you know, warlords and all this stuff. And uh bison says something like these are just educational texts why does he find them so disturbing like, you and then know, later just... on he punches the screen with them. <laughs> the kids uh yeah which i mean we'll talk about the the, the transition there thanks to dr dalsim right that we we go from you know watching 
the the Nazis conquer Poland to uh, MLK is the happy uh, <laughs> footage that is you know good and 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 preserves his humanity. Uh, but you know even after that he's like doing all of this kind of planning. He's got these sort of small scale models of Bisonopolis, his grand vision of a uh, you know kind of a, a world and a, a city that he rules with complete and total power and as he's giving you know these very eloquent like we said sort of villainous speeches about creating a unified world and everyone bowing before him and bending the knee to bison he's also looking at this at this little uh structure and saying i think we need to make the food court bigger i think that the brands will really want to get in on this um and it's such a good fucking line i mean it's very funny the sort of just like i I don't know it it almost feels prescient you know when you think of like you know down the line we're going to be dealing with someone like uh like a donald trump you know who who does have this weird kind of like stasis of 90s brand synergy kind of like built into his whole identity and is making decisions about policy and about the way that we navigate as a country um there there's something there that i find compelling i think that i mean i'm glad you brought up the trump thing because i was going to bring it up in the context of um one of my favorite maybe my single favorite element of bison's character are all the little hints that he's broke have you noticed where yes. you know, his bank account is shown to have zero dollars in it um, at the end? And he's instead of paying Saget, he uh, he offers him bison dollars, which will be worth, what, five British pounds once he's kidnapped their queen. He's just he's just pulling stuff out of his hat to to try and paper over the fact that he is out of money, you know, and, and that plays into the, you know, the food court talk. Right. Like he still needs to he's still a hustler who just wants to make a dollar and he's a bad businessman, so he can't make money. And so he becomes a tin pot dictator. And this reminds like, of course, this reminds us of someone. But um, yes. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, all that is, um, he's a surprisingly nuanced character in that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's maybe the only nuanced character. I, I agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give a quick shout out to to friend of the show, uh, Brandon Streisnig, who actually wrote a piece on Street Fighter a couple of years back for Secret Handshake uh, that goes into a little bit more about this and sort of the prescience of the character of Bison in Street Fighter as, you know, a, a very familiar kind of despot to Americans uh, after 2016 or so. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that nuance there, it is so funny to think of him as just like, you know, this terrible businessman, but still like kind of on his grind. He's, he's printing, you know, he's, he's going into the red printing his bison bucks, his bison dollars that are going to be worth something as soon as he can commit more acts of terrorism. Uh, he's just, I mean, he's such a goofball. He's so funny. He's so like flamboyant and cartoonish in these ways. Um, you know, even before we get to like his very famous, it was Tuesday line and and any of the other stuff, his punchings of the screen when he's, when he's floating due to, you know, electric power or whatever it is, they, they throw that in. Mm Um, he's just, he's just a cartoon character and, and Julia does that so well. He's so readily able to like tap into that goofiness. I mean, and the dialogue, I mean, genuinely works. I mean, I mean, for as much as I like to quote 
Jean-Claude Van Damme in this for his terrible dialogue, but like, I mean, when he starts quoting biblical verses, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, it starts, you know, talking about, uh, you know, <laughs> this is a little rant about the technology of the bullet train from Tokyo to Osaka. And the, uh, I mean, it's, it's all just, uh, just, it's so specific and it all kind of works. Um, and again, I think Julia is the only one who can, even his most risible lines, he wrangles them by, he, he 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 gives them he, he's thought through the meaning of the lines and what he wants his character to say and when the lines are irreparable he shouts them right he he bellows them <laughs> like a madman as if he, you know it's okay no sane person would say this so i'm going to deliver this deliver this line completely insane um you know like the what is it uh you know in in uh we would I, we would fight an equal combat as two equals and then I would snap his spine. And he just, the way his, his character turns when he says that yes. is, uh, it, it's actual craft. There's real craft in this character in both the script level and the performance. And it, it's the one, I mean, I think people are wrong when they say that it's the one reason this movie is worth watching, but they're mm-hmm. right in that he's the only part of the film that works on any conventional level. Completely agree with you. I, I think too, just before the moment that you cite, uh, when he's speaking with Miguel A. Nunez Jr. as his sort of like lackey uh, DJ, <laughs> and they get the news over the television that uh, Guile, that Jean-Claude Van Damme has supposedly been, you know, struck down during West Studi's jailbreak. Uh, and DJ says, great news. Hey, that's, that's great news for you, boss. And his delivery of, on the contrary, I mourn, is so like... Then, okay. self-serious and so defeated in the moment that it's just like how can you not laugh at this like it's it's i, I think it's just wonderful i think it's absolutely terrific um i i do want to talk about the blanca character too because i think he offers like a very <laughs> interesting uh read and perspective on a very simple kind of like you know good and evil binary thing that this this movie like i said often sort of sidesteps here but you know he's he's stuck in this incubator he's got these mutagens that just look like they're you you remember those like uh like popsicles that are just like syrup like colored syrup that you have to like put in the freezer and then they freeze into you know what what are they called tasty ice or something like that um but they're just like bags of that just like orange and green like gatorade or something like dna mutagens handle with care right (laughs) yeah everything's labeled very um very simply for us to understand its intent (laughs) um but yeah he's just like he's getting pumped full of all these uh electrolytes and gatorade and his muscle mass is expanding his hair is turning orange and he's He's being fed (laughs) yes and he's being fed you know through like some sort of like ludovico device all of these images (laughs) of like horror and and violence and terror um to to turn him into a monster um and you know maybe it's reading too far into it but i i have the sense that there's this very interesting almost kind of like reactionary thrum here of things of you know like media and whatever maybe it's him you know kind of thumbing his his nose at this notion of any sort of media creating bad people or creating violent individuals which i know is you know kind of a a claim leveled at video games specifically you know these hyper violent ones like mortal Kombat or you know these fighting games like street fighter that were out at the time uh maybe i'm maybe i'm making some leaps here or stretching this too far but to me it almost seems like it's a commentary on that idea you know and and almost kind of playfully saying like oh we're gonna turn 
this guy into like a, a hulking green monster by just feeding him images and and turning him into this like horrible thing well uh, D'Souza does go at he does spend a significant amount of time in the commentary going at that kind of reactionary uh you know anti-video game thing and the whole moral majority stuff so you know I think that 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 could there could very well be something there and um also I love the implication that suddenly switching the channel to Martin Luther King Jr. will deprogram you which is Yeah, it and the the stuff that is, is shown is like very f- funny to me, you know, like <laughs> for one thing, I, I think it just shows, you know, kind of like the the whole sort of like liberal rinsing of MLK and, and that yeah. entire movement, you know, that like this is our our, you know, a, a nice friend who did, did never clash with authority in any way and was like palatable for all Americans. And, you know, the reason that we have a, a post-racial society today and in the end of history. Um, but alongside it, it's just like, it's a photo of some sort of weird, like it looks like the wedding scene from Mission Impossible Fallout when the nuke <laughs> is going off, like in the valley. Um, I, I can't quite make out what it is, but there's like babies cooing. There's like, I don't know, like ducklings in water. It's it's just like a, a, such a strange kind of like loop of images that... I don't know. To me, feels more crazy making than I don't know watching fire and tanks roll over buildings or anything like that. And yet, Bison is so offended by it. So offended by a, a toddler <laughs> being walked by their parents. It's uh, it's great. Um, it, it's also funny that with Blanca too, like you know, Dalsum switches it over, you know, very incognito and and makes it so that you know he can retain some of his humanity by watching babies and and marriage and Martin Luther King. Uh, but it's like. 51% I think like there's like a da- like a yes. download bar right and it's like oh he's at 49% evil so he's just tipping the scales in favor of like still being a human being because we got we got those ducklings in there a little bit early and then you, I mean this all leads to one of the greatest moments of the film which is when uh, when Jean-Claude Van Damme is about to sh- mercy kill uh, Blanca, um, Charlie, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and uh, then you know Dalism steps in with. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've again. There's so many points in this film when I are some of the funniest moments in film history for me. But his delivery of the line "You have no right," the most self-righteous sounding thing I've ever heard, and uh, you know his little speech about you know who are you to judge if you can't tell the difference between right and wrong. Um, it's um, <laughs> how dare you judge this horrific mutant who's living their life in pain. Um, it's I mean <laughs> almost like whatever whatever the film is building up to in terms of maybe like trying to having something worth saying about the nature of imbibing media and violence. I just love that. It just explodes all that into just this, this hilarious like little, Hey, uh, this, this is a beautiful creature. We must save him. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite something. I know. And it's, I mean, it's so funny that by the end too, like, you know, there's this like, you know, chaos and, and the, the hideout is collapsing around them and they're all trying to escape and everyone gets out at the end except for Van Damme and Blanca and Dalsum. And at this point, his like lab coat has been torn to shreds and is like wrapped around him almost like like Gandhi robes, you know, like he's become this like kind of almost like figure in the the film of like, you know, like nonviolence or whatever. And and he says like, I 
I, I'm going to go and stay with him and we're going to die together here because I need to atone for my sins, you know, from, for my complicity in, in using science in this way. Um, it's just, it's such a strange, like little, again, just like, they're just brush strokes here. They're just little moments that don't need to exist that create uh, a little bit more of that absurdist seasoning to all of it. You know, and that's another great example. Um, Delson's costuming at the last bit of just the sweatiness with which at the last half they're clearly going oh we don't have enough street fire content in here because uh, this he finally looks like his character and they justify with like a very very quick cutaway of him getting some of the dna mutant gems on him right it's okay, it's yeah. a true blink and you'll miss it i think i only caught it on like my third or fourth watch that oh he gets dna mutant gems on him and that's why he loses his hair in the 10 minute interval that you know <laughs> that ensues between that and his death um and I mean, there's so much of that. Like, there's the Hadoken where they didn't have time to put in the special effects. There's, um, you know, all this. Everyone starts using their quote unquote special moves. Um, the film gets really desperate, and of course, yeah. that's to the betterment of the movie. Yeah, it, I mean, it is really funny the way that you start to see all of them very deliberately taking on kind of the shape and the the imagery of their characters within the game yeah. like every there's a, there's a reason for all of it right like there's that whole kind of a side where zangief is like oh ken and ryu are our friends now let me let me take you and you know let me burn your your other clothes yeah. and give you this new uniform and it's you know it's just like you know a, a standard almost kind of like martial artist garb um, but for whatever reason, he's like, this is what our officers wear. Look, everyone else is sparring. Now you look like you, you work for Bison, despite the fact that we had not seen anybody wearing that prior to that, just like one kind of dojo scene where he's showing them around and saying, you guys are good now. We're, we're, we're on brand. We look like street fighters now. Yeah. And he also, I mean, yeah, just, I wonder how much of it is like, oh, let's, let's, let's reveal this. How much of it was D'Souza going, no, we're going to delay and give you the gratification at the end versus how much of it is just like, oh shit. Uh, I guess Cammy is wearing her uniform, you know, her video game outfit under her <laughs> uniform. Um, I guess, you know, uh, like at what point did they write the um, tattoo into the script, right? You know, was it on the day? Cause so much of this film was, was pulled together in the moment. Yeah, it's all, I mean, it feels very slapdash. Like the the fact that, you know, the, the classic like Chun-Li stuff is also like a slave Leia uniform effectively. Like when she's captured, she's just put in her like standard costuming. Yeah, they, they, they find a reason for all of it, it seems, but it, it could absolutely be something that was just sort of thought about moments before. And, and we, you know, have evidence that that's the case throughout that, you know, for some reasons that are, are, practical and unavoidable like uh Raul Julia's declining health um and some that just seem to be I, I don't know incompetency I guess but many of these fight scenes are very choppily edited much of the action is the same uh a lot of the choreography as I read was stuff that was you know being kind of thought of and, and choreographed on the spot on the day a couple hours before or you know as soon as the set was built they didn't um, train it, any of the stunt people or the actors for it and like yeah it was all um fairly there was danger like it was yeah it was it was a complete disaster yeah it i mean it it barely holds together it barely coheres and yet somehow like it doesn't it doesn't fall apart it doesn't it doesn't break at the seams in those moments it uh it still feels semi-coherent and fun enough and enjoyable enough like you don't you don't zone out while you're watching it i think um 
you know, it's, uh, I'm going to compare it to bad Lieutenant, the Herzog one <laughs> and say, you know, that's a broken movie, but in that case, the creator knowingly broke it. And I think some movies need to be broken. You know, some movies need to be broken to work, to be the best version of themselves. Street fighter is a great example of that. You know, I think, I mean, uh, the entire filmography of Ed Wood is another great example, right? Where those films are broken, but we wouldn't be talking about Ed Wood today with such love, genuine love in my, in my case, in my heart, if not for his broken movies. And, um, and so, you know, even for example, the fact that none of the action is cuts together. I mean, I complain about like, I complain about Mission Impossible 7's action, but that stuff is, is a master. That's George Miller level compared to this. Um, this is, um, <laughs> and, and I think too, the, um, the, the, it's even worth going into a bit the manner in which they dealt with their scheduling issues, because that was interesting. This is um, information from the, I'm going to pull up the name from the Chris Planta article in, um, mm-hmm. in Polygon, which is a, incredible read i think everyone who listens to this should read if they do one thing after this read this article it's incredible but um they they go into how they they were running 15 days behind they asked for 10 more and uh they had to hit their christmas release and this film was shot right up to the last minute right um and so they ended up basically splitting the the crew into like two or three different units, all of which were essentially doing first unit work. Um, but simultaneously. So you had like William Fraker directing stuff. You had D'Souza directing stuff without his cinematographer present. You had the second unit stunt <laughs> choreographer directing stuff. And oh, so God. it's, you know, you, you can really see it throughout where you can tell, okay, this was, this scene looks and feels very slack, right? Um, other scenes which have kind of more complex camera operation, better lighting. Um, and so, yeah, it's a film that you watch fall apart in front of your eyes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even structurally, it feels like they can't quite figure out where and how to conclude this movie. It, it, it's sort of like final set piece occupies almost the entire last hour of the film mm-hmm. uh which i always find astounding you know what you can kind of get like uh you can almost sort of get a a uh, sort of subconscious tap into like where the movie's going and like where you're at in terms of the the kind of you know classic three arc structure or rather three act structure of of these kinds of things and when they go after bison i'm like all right We've been watching this movie now for an hour, a little bit more. We're going to see 20, 25 minutes of this. And then I happened to, you know, like pause the movie momentarily to get up and grab a beverage and saw, oh no, we're effectively at the halfway point of this. And then we actually have like a a bisected, like final battle with Bison as well. Jean-Claude Van Damme fights him and then we think he kills him. He comes back for a moment and all of it is there just to stretch out this last act in this final confrontation so that we can get a little bit of closure for all of those different kind of errant plot threads that we've been playing around with this entire time. Time dilates in this film. <laughs> it, it, does. It, it does. Yes. Like, um, I think it's worth noting that the, the big speech, the rousing, which we should talk about the speech sometime, the rousing, oh, the greatest speech in cinematic history happens 45 minutes into this. <laughs> which is around the time, which again, that's like the kickoff of the climax. That's when ready to go climax time. That's yep. around the time the T-Rex first shows up in Jurassic Park. I mean, like it's, yes. it, it, it's wild. This film's pacing. It's, it's so broken. It's so bizarre. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is the point at which to like the movie has already kind of felt it's length at this point for sure too. It's, and I, it's a hundred minutes. Of- <laughs> it doesn't feel a minute under 140, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, the the kind of rousing speech portion of this happens uh sort of almost as soon as it begins, right? Wait, we're we have the the bureaucrats coming in to put a halt to the <laughs> United Nations, I'm sorry, Allied Nations operations within Shadaloo. How dare we this. impugn the UN with this? <laughs> <laughs> and and this is a very 90s thing too, right? Like even when you are you know, a vestige of Western imperial power, the way that like, you know, the uh, UN forces would be, uh, you've still got to be like the rebel and you still got to kind of be sticking it to the suits a little bit like that kind of act of, uh, act of rebellion is, is kind of quintessential to this era here. And so you've mm-hmm. got these, these roguish soldiers now, right? Like they are, they're in UN, uniforms they're on a peacekeeping mission but no they're they're actually there serving the interest of one the united states it's clear from arm tattoos and everything (laughs) else uh but also you know like they're they're sticking it to the man a little bit i also it's very funny too that you know the the guy the bureaucrat who ends up coming to try to halt them is uh the most british man uh you could possibly fathom you get this rousing moment of like let's let's uh go kick some ass even if we're doing it uh against orders here yeah i mean the film so clearly buys into this scene and you couldn't have asked for a better or more coherent self-parody in this moment right i mean you have this i mean the film stacks the deck by making simon callow the most uh, intolerably british human in history um <laughs> in, in the in this role and you know he's essentially he's the neville chamberlain right he's asking for appeasement uh and jean-claude van damme is the churchill slash fdr slash george bush asking for war and 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 this is where that gap between who jean-claude van damme is and what he's asked to do hits the hardest right i mean yeah uh the speech is incredible i mean the speech is a meme it has been for decades and justifiably so jean-claude i don't think a single word escapes his mouth that isn't funny. Um, but I, I think, I think for me, the, the kind of the, the most telling moment in the whole scene is when he's about to hop on his boat and, you know, the Simon Kelly goes, well, these instructions and, uh, you know, and he goes, stop them. And Jean-Claude Van Damme goes, I would, but some moron just canned me. And uh, <laughs> it feels like Simon Callow is playing the moment, not as, did you just hear what that man said? And he's playing it as, so I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. <laughs> um, I didn't. I, I, I physically did not understand what you're saying. Um, and it's it's weird because the moment, everything about it is trying to pump up the music too. Is trying to pump up the Jean Claude Van Damme character, but just the specifics of the line reading and the performance. Um, lended a completely different dynamic, one where uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme seems like the, the nothing blowhard he is. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, uh, everything is lost in translation there up to the point that they just totally evacuate. There is one moment later on that I think is a very successful like cutaway joke moment where Calo is like on the phone with whoever you know the the speaker whomever uh and is saying no ma'am you know like he he didn't take all of 
the soldiers. I managed to to retain some of them here. And it cuts back to the base and it's just like an old man sitting on a crate stirring a pot of stew as like a cat meows nearby. Um, I think that's effective. Again, one of those ones are like, oh, this is the comedy beats that are in this movie that do work on occasion, kind of like oh, you know, the Zangief's. comic relief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. You you also know that this is kind of silly and funny sometimes too. Which thank God, you know, it can't be all just like, uh, you know, funny, uh, in spite of. So, uh, that part is I, I think really good. And then you know they're in this boat, and and they make it very clear too that it's like we're doing an amphibious assault, and we're only taking one craft in. And it's this very strange, like, stealth. It, I mean, it looks like a bomber, like in, uh, you know, like a speedboat form. And it's very clearly too small in actual, like, craft for how big the interiors of it look. It's mm-hmm. like the Spice Bus, you know, like in the Spice World movie where it's like three stories tall, even though it's just supposed to be this little vehicle. Um, and you mentioned this already, but there's this bizarre music cue that cuts in that sounds unlike any of the other stuff that's come before it. It's not any of the fun, like hip hop from the soundtrack. It's not Graham Revelle's like orchestral compositions. It's like some sort of weird, like new age kind of song playing. And it has like this, like, you know, heavy, like electronic beat to it. And Guile puts a a video cassette into the monitor (laughs) and is watching like old, old camcorder footage of himself and a, a woman who he's never mentioned before <laughs> presumably his wife and then his buddy charlie and his lover um his buddy that he single-handedly ruined the life of yeah amazing. because he told he told on television that he's his friend uh <laughs> just immediately backfires anyways yeah but it's i mean this is one of those moments too that like i mean it, as you mentioned especially in like a kind of post-Iraq context is like this is this is insane this is like a guy getting pumped up with like the strangest kind of energy one could imagine (laughs) and and Kylie Minogue for her part uh and uh forgive me I I forget the other actor's name who plays T-Hawk both rightly look very confused in this scene and i can't tell if it's meaningful like i can't tell if it's like rather i can't tell if it's intentional i can't tell if they mean to look this way or or if it's just the nature of how the the thing is being performed and they can't help but you know like mask off in this moment but they are it's very ambiguous isn't it because kylie i think is trying to look sad and almost contemplative but it the way she plays it kind of looks like i'm looking at the floor until this awkward moment is over you know (laughs) yeah it almost looks like they don't want to disturb him right like they've just like been privy to like an extremely private moment where like 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 almost like they you know like are looking through a window and he's like masturbating or something like that (laughs) Yeah, I genuinely don't know whether it's, in- I agree, I don't know whether it's intended as, look at our wacky boss, always so wacky, or whether it's a sincere, like, oh, but I mean, the reality is, he is pumping himself up for murder, right? He is trying to, he, he's like those American, you know, the American soldiers you see in the various, like, on-the-nose, you know, Jarhead-style things uh, in the world, where it's, you know, it's this kind of horrifying moment when he's he's going, I need to just rage in my heart so I can murder better. Um, it, it's kind of, it's very disturbing, <laughs> 
It is absolutely. And you're right. Like it's got that, I don't even know exactly how to articulate it, but it's got that kind of like lack of taste to it that mm. feels so vital and so real to that kind of guy. And it's like, it's always the weirdest thing, right? You know, it's, it's the entire reason for so much of like, I feel like a, a weird kind of emotional alt metal of the 2000s that like really took purchase. It's like a guy, you know, jamming out to like evanescence to to get ready to go and, you know, like snipe some some people down like in in a desert somewhere. It's it's that kind of like uh, discordance where it's like, what what the fuck am I watching? Like, what, what are you looking at? What are you listening to? And you're doing that so that you can like get ready to go and. Yeah, go and, you know, karate some guys to death and blow up a, a despot's military base. There's these little flashes of glee whenever he kills someone, too. Like, I, I'll never forget the bit where he knifes, the guy all knifes the guy in the back. And then it cuts, like, it's not like an incidental thing. It cuts to a close-up of him smirking with these, like, fire in his eyes. Like, he's, yes, <laughs> oh, I love murdering humans. It's uh, it's quite something. It's It's so funny. And, you know, you've you've already used the phrase, which I think is important here, which is like fascist on fascist action happening here <laughs> at the end. It's I mean, it's so clear, right, that the movie favors Guile, favors these these A.N. people and Chun-Li and all these people working in concordance, like as the good guys. And obviously Bison is I mean, he's evil. He's a warlord. He's uh, merciless. He wants to control everyone. He wants to kidnap the queen. Although that's, I, I would be okay with that. You can do that one, I guess. If he gets his uh, bison dollars, it's worth it. If he gets that exchange rate, you know, and, <laughs> and pays me handsomely enough for it, we'll, we'll be okay. Uh, but like you said, I mean, this, this is where that kind of like inadvertent satire comes in where it's like, oh yeah, like this is this is the bloodlust. This is the like unrealized potential, the unrealized machismo of like the eighties and the end of the cold war in mm -hmm. this movie, you know, like all this kind of like fetishism. And in that way, like it is a movie in the mid nineties, you know, it's, it's late 1994 going on 95 here, but it feels very much uh, of a piece with the stuff like, commando the stuff like rambo right where we have these characters who are basically playing out the fantasy of like what if what if the scenario in vietnam was actually winnable what if we actually did it right what if yeah. we actually were victorious here and a lot of gulf war stuff too i think where it's like let's roll into this country take out this timpoc dictator and leave it and happily ever after you know completely it's i mean it is all of the sort of like failed or or rather even like almost like underwhelming military actions of the past however many years you know that are all checking in and you know we're, we're we're getting a chance to play out this version of it that feels familiar to us that makes sense that has clearly drawn lines and that has a satisfying conclusion uh to fulfill our bloodlust frankly there are, I mean, to draw another comparison, um, this is um, this was uh, inspired by something that D'Souza said in the commentary um, that made me think of the film The Big Country, <laughs> which is uh, William Wyler Gregory Peck joint from the fifties, and that and that film and this one have a strange um, have a strange uh, kind of 
kinship in that they both deal with the kind of dream of the UN peacekeeper in different ways, yeah. right? Where um, th- there's a line that D'Souza says in the commentary that I transcribed here that says, um, he, and this is said over the over top of the scene where, you know, Bison and Guile are facing each other and they're dismissing their armies. Um, D'Souza says, here we have the head of, here we have the heads of the two armies facing each other and dismissing the soldiers. If only General Schwarzkopf and Saddam Hussein had done that, think how much simpler world politics would be today. And that's almost identical to the sentiment uh, expressed by, I believe, William Wyler. It might have been Peck because he also co-produced, but I think it was Wyler. Expressed, um, it was trying to express with the ending of the big country, which is all about uh, <laughs> this ranch war. It's entirely a, um, what's the word? That film is entirely an allegory for Eisenhower and I believe at the time it was Khrushchev. Um, and mm. their kind of tit for tat stuff um, where it's, hey, why don't they just draw their guns at noon Best man wins, you know, and then, you know, geopolitics is solved. So there is this kind of like, and, and again, I think that's a deeply silly sentiment, of course, but there's this kind of a very naive, idealistic idea of, oh, if only these politicians were honorable and they would just, why, they would just have a duel and be and ha- and, and and solve world peace. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> so there's that weird, like, utopian vision there that I just find interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as we're speaking about the idea of like, you know, the, the UN peacekeepers and stuff, we've talked a little bit already about sort of this film's prescience and, and the way that it actually plays as something uh, that feels, I don't know, very almost prophetic in uh, light of the Iraq war. You think about the sentiments towards like the, the United Nations, towards like the weapon inspectors and the sort of like punchline that they became in in the 2000s you know they mm-hmm. they had uh wasn't it de niro on saturday night live you know like poking fun at this notion of like you know uh iraqi officials just like very casually like you know kicking some sand over the warheads and the un officials not being able to like read the writing on the wall that like they were being duped uh we get that same kind of dynamic here right that we need uh, people of action. We need men who are willing to like use brute force and uh, get people to like capitulate and and to you know bend the knee to us and to give up their evil ways rather than the bureaucrats, rather than the suits, rather than the people who you know are, are handing down the instructions and the orders in a, a blue folder. I don't know. It just feels it feels primed and charged and ready to receive for a generation that's about to witness what they're about to witness in the new in the new millennium. It's a strikingly honest depiction, or I wouldn't want to say depiction. It's a strikingly honest expression of neoconservatism. This movie, in that way, where it's it's you know that Reagan, George Bush, both of them uh, sentiment of why don't we screw the rules? We're just gonna. You know, we're just going to go in and and then ask ask questions later or um, find the thinnest excuse and uh, and to hell with the red tape of the people who want who care about things like human rights. It's a funhouse mirror reflection of all of our sympathies, all of our pretensions as a nation and especially like uh, our fixations militarily <laughs> as like a. Uh, movie-going populace of the time. It uh, it gets a lot right, frankly. And uh, it's also, I, I mean, just 
a, a total blast to watch as we're watching it when you can kind of tap into and key into what what it's doing even unintentionally yeah it's i mean it, it's a film that i think deserves I truly wonder if it'll ever become an actual cult thing. I think it maybe the the time has passed for that. It's it's like outside that twenty year window when such a thing is really possible, and because it really to me is, I mean, it's it's my go to. There's there's two films that are my go to answer for what film do you suspect you're maybe the world's biggest fan of. Um, to me, it's either <laughs> this or the um, Bulgarian The Treasure Planet. Those are the two, but. Okay. Um, uh, which is the other uh, that film, um, but. Um, but but you know the thing about this film is that it has so much to offer it is truly a an experience unlike anything i've ever seen it's completely completely unique and it's very rare that i can say that about a movie that's this questionable <laughs> um and, and and so i mean to, to me i truly believe that greatness in art doesn't have to come from exquisite mastery it can on the rare occasions come through via accident and bumbling. You know, uh, that's why I love, you know, Otto Preminger's Skidoo. It's why I love the works <laughs> of Ed Wood. It's why I still, despite James Franco's attempts to kill that love, love the room. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's these films reveal more about their authors than they think. And in the case of The Room, that revealed much more about Tommy Wiseau than he thought. And in this case, it reveals much more about the Hollywood system than anyone who made it thought. And that's why, weirdly enough, it's I think it's one of the most honest, uh, entertaining things to ever emerge from that system. I'll handle this. How's the work, Colonel? What a surprise. Welcome to the Shadaloo front. You're just in time for the kickoff. I'm afraid not, Colonel. The Security Council has just voted. They've decided to negotiate. You're joking. We think we can deal with General Bison. You're instructed to call off the assault. Contact him. Request an extension of his deadline. We are prepared to pay the ransom demand. Twenty billion dollars? What will prevent him from taking more hostages next month and asking for fifty billion? One hundred billion? Colonel. Have you lost your mind? No. You've lost your balls. Colonel Guile, deliver these instructions to your troops, and then consider yourself relieved of your command. Troopers, I just received new orders. Our superiors say the war is canceled. We can all go home. Meanwhile, ideals like peace, freedom, and justice, they get packed up, but we can all go home. Well, I'm not going home. I'm gonna get on my boat, and I'm going upriver, and I'm going to kick that son of a bitch bison's ass so hard that the next bison wannabe is gonna feel it. Now, who wants to go home? And who wants to go with me? I know for a fact that we are not alone in our regard for this film. I know that there is, you know, a a small but vocal group of people who do love this movie quite a bit. Um, as you said, whether or not it becomes a cult object that gets 
a a necessary and and deserved kind of reevaluation. Maybe we are past that point. Who knows? We're coming up on a 30 year anniversary next year. So maybe there's still hope. Maybe there's time to fly that flag. Uh, but I, I, you know, don't think that we'll ever see something like it, quite like it again, um, despite, you know, Capcom's attempts to to mm. try at it and, and, and wanting to continue to take this property in new directions. We, uh, I guess, haven't mentioned yet, you know, the legacy of this. There's a fun little almost like capitalist Ouroboros that was going on with this movie where like it is a film that directly adapts Street Fighter 2, the video game. Uh, and then it itself is adapted into Street Fighter, a the movie, the game, right? <laughs> Street Fighter, the movie, the game. Yes. Uh, which is independent of, I guess, the, the other Street Fighter films. It doesn't follow the chronology or the continuity of them at all. It's just based on the game and, I guess, uses whatever likenesses they are allowed to, to trademark and register from the characters portrayed by the actors. Um, I've never played it. I haven't really seen it insofar as I can remember, but it's just funny to me that it's like, no, no, no this is not you know, used as almost like a, an on-ramp to a, a new video game. It is itself a new vestige of that same property where we can make games off of it, make games adjacent to it that are still within that continuity. Um, and of course, sell the toys, you know, as, mm-hmm. as is always so important for this. You know, that was part of why the film became such a disaster. They said, no, we have to release this at Christmas because the toys are more important than the film. You know, we can have the biggest <laughs> piece of shit in the world, but we need to have that thing in the, we need to get that piece of shit in the cinemas so we can sell all the toys. And, you know, so. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, and put it in prime awards season, you know. So, you know, the the fact that it, it misses <laughs> uh, any nominations is a travesty, you know. We'll never know what, what could have been. I wonder, like production design. I mean, I would have given the Oscar to uh, to Raul Julia probably. <laughs> Just give him that. You know, life. You know, call it a lifetime achievement award. But I, you know, I, I think this is actually genuinely one of my favorite performances of '94, of which there are quite a few performances. I think that I that I love. But this yeah. is up there. I mean, he's having a total blast in it, as we've already mentioned. Uh, but you know, continuing with like the legacy of this and with like the Street Fighter franchise properties video games galore made uh off of this still uh there was a another film in 2009 that was a spin-off called the legend of chun li which was mm-hmm. received even worse than this film uh it looks very much i have not seen it myself i uh, admittedly but looks very much like a product of that kind of like late aughts uh self-serious kind of very grounded and terrestrial version of these kinds of things where Mm. it's uh you know a lot of people clad in leather and a lot of like really terrible kind of like you know digital sheen on everything um it doesn't look very good (laughs) is my point i I can't imagine it has quite the same popper or energy as this film uh and it was just announced very recently I i think just about six months ago that legendary uh now has the rights to this property and that they are moving forward with producing uh, another film adaptation. Oh boy. I don't know how that's going to go. 
they're going to have to get Jean-Claude out of retirement, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I actually have seen Legend of Chun-Li. I think I watch it contemporaneously because that was around the time I discovered this movie. Okay. And I will say, I remember not a damn thing. I do not remember a single thing from that movie except the fact that I remember downloading a 700 megabyte AVI and watching it. Uh, that's all <laughs> I remember of that film, the, the act of acquiring it. Actually, I, I do want to uh, give a shout out to Mill Creek did put out an incredible release uh, the, the transfer is terrible, but if you want a nice box and a bison dollar, Mill Creek put out a great release of Street Fighter 94. Um, mm-hmm. It's I, I again, it's it's a the film has never been transferred well. It's like a 90s DI. It's terrible. But aside from that fact, it's a great release. <laughs> yeah. Is this the the Steelbook one with the the cool artwork on it? That's like all the characters. Yeah, one that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there the it is full... with with the Napoleon Bison uh, painting on the cover of it. Exactly. It's one of my most. I mean, again, I, I have quite a few criterions. I, I would take this on the island first. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen some people uh, remark on that one, and I think you're right. Like the the consistent complaint is maybe the transfer, but it does it does look beautiful. And now I know where to find my bison bucks when I want to acquire them myself. Eventually, uh, I mean, those things are, <laughs> those things are going to appreciate so much once we kidnap their queen. That's uh, right. It's it's our version of crypto investment, frankly. Like it is going to eventually, you know, we're we're gonna go to the moon with that stuff. You you collect enough of those bison bucks, and uh, buddy, in the new world, you're gonna be a millionaire. I, I wish that for you. I wish that for everyone collecting their bison bucks. Uh, well, with that, we have come to our conclusion here. I, I want to thank you, Devin, for joining me today and going long on Street Fighter the movie. You've been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been wonderful. Um, Devin, tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about where they can find you and your work around the internet. Well, I'm on the usual websites. I'm, my name is spelled the weird Irish way, D-E-V-A-N, so I'm easier to find. But um, right now, uh, I'm currently halfway through a two-year-long podcast about my favorite director named Ernst Lubitsch. He is a old German director who's been dead for 76 years. So, you know, if that doesn't move <laughs> you, then what will? Um, but no, it's uh, it's a long podcast where I invite a series of guests to cover his entire filmography from the really obscure stuff he did in Berlin in the 1910s to the pretty obscure stuff he did in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, and a lot of talk about cinematography, about old Hollywood technology, um, some fun drama about capital, um, but mostly just talking about my favorite movies ever um and that can be found at uh, it's called how would lubich do it it's on all the usual podcast apps and also we have a website ernstcast.com but uh otherwise i'm i'm mostly working for random clients who pay me to make their movies look less bad so (laughs) (laughs) fantastic we'll see your work out there in the in the real world sometime from our end of things you can follow along with the show at hit factory pod uh we have a Patreon as well, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, where you get the full Hit Factory experience for just $5 per month, bi-weekly bonus episodes, and other awesome content. Uh, and you get invited to our Discord, where we're hanging out and chatting all the time about whatever floats our boat, not just 90s movies. Um, come in there, get some cry-laughing emojis from the gang. It's well worth it. You will enjoy yourself. Uh, I will thank our overlords. Their names are Linda and Jared Murray. Thank you for your continued support. And we will catch you all the next time. Take care, everyone.